the ability to keep God's law to show him how bad he had become. Now what man did and what man does is to twist this purpose of the law and to make it the means of pleasing God and thus the way to earn a spot in heaven. In other words, a direct reversal of its intended use. When we read in the law, thou shalt not commit adultery, and then we read the weightier command of Christ, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, Matthew 5.28, the law does not become a comfort to me or to any man because he can say, well, I've never committed adultery with any woman. Because in our hearts, men know we are condemned by our lustful thoughts as well as by lustful deeds. Jesus makes that clear. Even more demoralizing is the fact that as sinners, men tend to pick and choose from the commands of God those things which they deem important, important enough to obey, and then, okay, discard those things they don't think are so important. And so in the end, the religion men follow is of their own making. And it's far, far away from God and his originally his originally commanded law. So we're guilty of breaking God's law on two fronts. We can't keep the standard of morality because it's beyond our ability. And secondly, we distort his law or become selective of what we will obey and what we won't obey, and that thus making his law null and void. These are the basic principles of the world. This is how the people of the world handle their obligation to worship their creator. And in the end, guess what? It only condemns them. May I say, in all honesty, this was all of us before we came to know Christ. It was all of us. It may still be you if you do not believe in Christ and his work then you're still a child struggling under guardians and trustees, living your life on what others say is true and not mature enough to face your own shortcomings and your own sin honestly. As God mirrors back from the scriptures your true nature. God gave his law, his commandments to expose your sin. But you've made obedience to his law as a means of showing how good you are. Think about that. God gave his law to condemn self-effort, to cause sinners to run to Christ. That's the Galatian error. Well, to run away from Christ. No wonder Paul says of these churches, he says it in chapter 4, verse 11, I fear for you, I'm reading scripture, I fear for you that somehow, somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Whoa. If you're turning back and you're going back to this false understanding of the law and salvation, then you really haven't come to Christ. Christ. 
They haven't really seen the necessity of his grace. To continue the comparison then between an heir who is still a child and therefore immature and under the guidance of guardians and trustees, Paul explains what happened when time resulted in maturity. When the child heir grew up, came of age, what happened? Verse 4 of Galatians 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Notice in this whole scenario that God considers certain people to be heirs even when as children they are enslaved to wrong philosophies. Wrong notions on how to worship God, how to obtain his forgiveness. He says, verse 3, when we were children, we were in slavery. And it is these same people he calls children in verse 3, whom he identifies in verse 4 as sons who have received the full rights of their inheritance. That is, they're no longer under slavery to the basic principles of the world, verse 3. And so they're no longer immature children. They've grown up. In other words, they were heirs all along from the viewpoint of God. Heirs enslaved to sinful notions about God and salvation, but heirs nonetheless. You know, if God sets his affections upon you, you're not going to get away. <laughs> He's got the iron grip of divine power, right? The drawing power of the Holy Spirit. Bible clearly teaches God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. That's the destiny of all those whom God chooses to reveal himself. But this doesn't mean that we start out this way in our time slot in human history. Paul went on to tell the Ephesian brethren that they were in a bad way when God came to them. What does he say? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were sinners. That's where you, that's where you were. In which you used to live. That was your lifestyle. You didn't have any time for God. He goes on. You followed the ways of the world. And that's the basic principles of our text that he's talking about. All of us, says Paul, used to live among them. At one time, gratifying the cravings of our own Sinful nature, following its desires, following its thoughts. That's where we were. Ephesians 2, verse 1 and following. So when someone from the world says to you, you Christians think you're better than everybody else. You ought to read them this text in Ephesians 2, which says basically, no, no, we don't say that. We don't believe that. We believe we are... As worse as everybody else. 
The only difference between me and you as sinners, we're both sinners, but the only difference between me and you as sinners is that God intervened in my life and snatched me away from all of that. He changed my heart and changed my thinking and changed my life. And you see the change. That's why you say to me, you think you're better than the rest of us. But I don't think I'm better than the rest of you. I just think God's been merciful to me. Now to be sure, there has been revolutionary changes in our Christian experience. Two momentous events. One in history past, one in our own time slot in human history. Firstly, he said in verse 4 of Galatians 4, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. And this son is none other than Jesus Christ, whose nativity we celebrate at this time every year, whose mother was a virgin maiden named Mary whose conception involved no sexual union with a man, but was instead the result of God's Holy Spirit coming upon her. And let me read the scripture. The power of the Most High overshadowing her. Now that's how her offspring could be the Holy One called the Son of God. Luke 1 verse 35. That's how that can be. I mean, think about this. If Jesus is the product of the normal union between a husband and a wife, then he is Joseph and Mary's son, not God's son. And if Joseph fathered Jesus, then God is not his father, and he's no more divine than you and me. And if he's not divine... He's a sinner like all men who trace their heritage all the way back to Adam, the first sinner. So he has his own account to give to God, his own failures to atone for his own sins. He cannot help me and he cannot help you. We're in trouble if he's just a man sired by Joseph with Mary. But the Bible substantiates Mary's virginity many times over. And thus the virgin birth of Jesus, not only through the word of God to her, which should be sufficient for us, but also in Matthew's statement that Joseph, and let me read it for you, had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus Matthew 1, verse 25. There's a lot of people who don't even know this verse is in the Bible, but there it is. Just one little verse, one little sentence, but boy, does it say a lot. Joseph had no sexuality with Mary until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. We're under the notion that people 
Eh, they just didn't talk about these things in Bible days, right? But Matthew obviously knew this truth about Joseph and Mary because, guess what? These things were discussed in Bible days. The church needed to know that Joseph took means to squelch any assumption of the people that Jesus was his child. No, 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 no. He and Mary together decided that until Jesus was born, they would abstain from relationships. And knowing this, knowing this helps us to believe all the more that Mary's child was conceived of God's spirit and thus he's God's son, not Joseph's son. I'm glad this one little verse, one little sentence is in our Bible. Not that I wouldn't believe the rest of the Bible and other texts, but it helps the skeptics, doesn't it? Or it should. And in what sphere of life and belief was Jesus born? Well, Paul tells us he was born under the law to redeem those under the law. Remember earlier we said that the purpose of God in giving his law, his moral code to men, was to show man that, hey, you cannot save yourself by obedience. The Ten Commandments won't save you because, guess what? You can't obey the Ten Commandments. And despite man's attempt to pick and choose what commands he wants to obey, the principle is this. Let me read it to you from Scripture, Galatians 5, verse 3. Every man who lets himself be circumcised is obligated to obey the whole law. What's Paul saying? You don't get to pick and choose. The same applies for any other law in addition to the right of circumcision. You may wish to choose, but as a system of salvation, God is saying, if you want to save yourself by obedience to the law, it's all or nothing. And this is why the law condemns us because none of us can obey it all, all the time, in all the ways. So James the Apostle says it this way, we all stumble in many ways. You know, we might have some very self-righteous people that think, well, you know, I, I obeyed the Ten Commandments. And James says, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> what you do is you stumble in many ways. You break not just one commandment, but two and three, and if you really analyzed your life according to the Scripture, you've broken all ten of the commandments. So the law, instead of becoming a means of salvation, actually becomes a means of condemnation. How so? If, con if it condemns me, it condemns you for breaking its precepts. 
And it only takes one offense to take us into the category of lawbreaker. James puts it this way. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet yet just stumbles at just one point is guilty. Is guilty. James 2 verse 10. How foolish of a convicted rapist to offer as his defense. Well, I only slept with another man's wife. I didn't murder her. James argues that the same God who commanded do not murder is the same God who commanded do not commit adultery. So if you break one of the commands, you sin, says James, and are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker, James 2 verse 9. You should know as well that to press the principle that in addition to the biggies, of murder, adultery, which men like to use to justify their righteousness. You should know that the Ten Commandments also forbid worshiping any God, but the God of the Bible, making gods or idols out of the things that we find in the heavens and the stars or on earth, misusing God's name in profanity. Boy, we hear that everywhere. Dishonoring one's parents, children, that's commandment number five. Stealing, commandment number eight. Lying and coveting, commandment number ten. You're guilty, I'm guilty. And what is more, we both know it. Thus in Christ coming into this world, he was born as a man under the same law of which the law, same law of God which condemns us. But instead of disobeying God's law, even at one point, he lived a perfect compliance as only God's Son could do. That was proof of his deity, was it not? Joseph's son would have been full of false accusations, as indeed Jesus' half-brothers were, Mark 3, verse 21, when they accuse him of being out of his mind, <laughs> full of hurting and snide remarks as when they ridiculed Jesus for not presenting himself publicly as a king, John 7, verse 4. But even when Christ was led before Pontius Pilate in later life and accused of treasonous conduct, he refused to speak in his own defense. You see, Pilate knew he was innocent of any crime. And he said so. But he released him to the wishes of the crowd nonetheless. Thus Jesus, the innocent, born under the law, redeemed those under the law by dying on the cross and thus paying the penalty for all the disobedience of his people. Even the way in which he died by crucifixion was a penalty of the law for criminals. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. To put it simply, Christ lived a life of obedience to the law which we could never live. And he died under the penalty of the law for all those times when we have broken God's laws. So in this two, twofold way, 
we are redeemed from under the law. It's been fulfilled for us in the person of our substitute. And this means that the law can no longer condemn us for our failures. God is appeased. We are forgiven. That's the first momentous event which happened in history past to make it possible for us who were children of the world to become full-blown heirs of God as his sons. And then the second most momentous event which brought this to pass was in our time slot in history when, he says, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, which is Hebrew, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Verse 6 and 7. What good is it if, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, if I don't know this personally, and don't believe it in my heart. What good is that to me? If Christ and his work on the cross remains external to my consciousness, to my faith, how am I benefited by it? Well, the truth is, I am not benefited by it. That's just the point. And so God continues his work. Not only did he predestinate us to be adopted as his sons when we were pitiful sinners locked into our own lusts and rebellion, but as Paul puts it, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive, spiritually, with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. And Jesus put it this way. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life and I will raise Him up at the last day. I love that verse. John 6 verse 40. Spiritual life given to hearts deadened by sin and from that new life faith to believe in Jesus as Savior. And all this by God's grace, not by any works which we have done. You know, in all of this, God gets the glory and Christ is recognized as the king that he is. The world is not the same since the arrival of the king. You will not be the same from the day that Christ comes into your life. The change is revolutionary from being a slave, verse 7, to becoming a full-fledged son and heir of God. Wow, that's transitional. So my prayer is that Christ would arise in your heart today. May God send his spirit to reform your thinking, to convince you of the redemption and forgiveness which awaits you in Christ. But if you won't have Christ as Savior, guess what? You're going to have him as judge. So oh, don't tell us about that. Pat. Oh, yeah, I got to tell you about that because that's the whole truth. So help me, God, I can't just give you half the truth. Well, where do you get that? Well, let me read you Jesus' own 
words. The Father judges no one, says Jesus. He's entrusted all judgment to the Son, me, that all may honor the Son. Do not be amazed at this. A time is coming when all who hear in, who are in the graves will hear his voice and they will come out of their graves. Those who have done good will rise to life. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. And guess who's going to be the condemner? It's going to be Christ, the judge of all men. John 5, 22 and following. Paul, writing in harmony with Jesus' own words, says this, We must all appear, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5. Well, brethren, I've said before you today the way of death and the way of life, so I'm enjoining you to choose life. Choose life. Choose Christ as Savior now. So he will not be the judge who condemns you later. <laughs> Here is gracious invitation. These are his words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11. Verse 28 and following. Do you know there's nothing so burdensome as a life of sin under the heavy hand of God? Wow. You will not escape. You will be miserable. You will be in anguish of soul. You will be alone. You will be lost and in despair until you run away from your sin. And come to Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing. But in Christ there's true emancipation. The bondage of sin is broken. The slave is set free. And in him you'll be free to love God and love your fellow man as you've never loved them before. Your family ties will be better. Your personality will improve. Trust me, it will. <laughs> You will love and be loved. God can and will do this for all who ask him. So my charge is ask him. Ask him. In closing, I ask this question. What is Jesus doing now in heaven while he awaits the time of his second coming? Because he is coming again. Just like he came the first time in answer to all the Old Testament prophecies, he's coming a second time in answer to the Old Testament prophecies. Well, what's he doing now in heaven while he waits the day of judgment? He tells us in his own words, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. John 14, verse 2 and 3. 
Now, I know you like the idea of a mansion, and the old King James uses the word mansion. But the original word here in the original language is monet, an abiding place, an apartment. Oh, no, not an apartment. I don't want to live in an apartment. Yes, listen to it, though. Where's the apartment? It's in the Father's house. It's in his domicile. Picture an estate of a very, very wealthy land baron. Money's no object. Acreage is unlimited. Fields stretch for miles and miles. A pristine river flows from the mountain gorges through this tranquil valley. The Taj Mahal looks like a pauper shack by comparison. The architect and builder is God, says the writer of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. And what does Jesus say he's doing while he's in heaven? The Son of God is ever serving. He is ever working for the good of his people. He's working what? To prepare a place for you. He's making sure that nothing is left to chance. Everything properly ready to receive the family of believers. And what is most outstanding, listen to this text, most outstanding, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, listen to this, I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will serve them and have them recline at table, and will come and wait on them. I hardly believe that's in the Bible, but there it is. It'll be good for those servants whose master finds them ready. Oh, wow, what a Savior. (laughs) Came to earth to serve. And when we get to glory, what's he doing? (laughs) He's still serving us. Still waiting on us. Making life as beautiful and as comfortable and as gracious as only God can do. Oh. Think the thought at this Christmas season. Little baby Jesus, there's a lot more to him than a manger. Our Father, we thank you for your word. How precious it is. I pray that you will smite us with our false notions of God. We've listed some of those today. False ideas. False ideas of how to get to heaven. False ideas of why Jesus came. Clear up the false information. As our president would say, it's fake news. Fake news. And boy, how we like to go to that which is fake, even of our own invention. The good news, Lord, the true news, far better than anything we could come up with. I pray that you will help us see that. 
Work in the hearts of unbelievers here today. May they see Christ and only Christ as their Savior. May they come to him. Lord, grant them faith. Draw them today to yourself by that power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this, firstly and foremost, for your glory, for you are glorified. Even if one person comes to know God as Savior, you are glorified. But also for our good. It's always good when God is glorified. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn, it's from the hymnal number 234. 234. Oh, no. No closing hymn. The choir's going to sing. <laughs> Sit still for one more minute. <laughs> Come on, choir. I think I heard that the average is about seven years that a pastor stays at work, so you're, you're, you're past. <laughs> but uh, if, you, if you Google uh, steadfast in ministry, I think uh, Fred's picture would come up 
share a couple of memories. Um, if our, our, our God is a, is a wonderful God and he, he works through means and uh, pastors ministry is, is some of those means. Um, the Holy Spirit teaches us but he uses means and our pastor is those means. I can remember in the 90s um, up in the little Sunday school room up there having a um, the theology Sunday school class that the pastor taught and, and, and how patient he was and um, those weeks slash years uh, of instruction um, took, it takes a long time for a simple woodworker to kind of get something and um, the, the patience and, and all those years so um, it's, not, it's not big it's not thousands but the effect that our pastor and his wife had on this group in this community, I, I, for me, it's great because it affects me directly. And as far as Donna's concerned, of course we miss her. I can just see her scurrying about on a Christmas Sunday morning um, doing whatever all she did, you know. And um, I often would think to myself, I wish she would just kind of cool it, you know. I wish she'd just take a breath and, and not kind of kill herself over this stuff. And um, I remember I told the story a couple of times um, at the funeral, but I remember her. Um, it was just one of our meeting days or something, and she had made dinner for us, and as she often did. And and I said, Donna, you know, thank you very much, but you don't, you just don't have to do this. It's it's okay. And she said she kind of scolded me, and she said, I like doing this. She got joy from ministry. And so that was a lesson to me that don't, don't be thinking about yourself all the time. <laughs> Think about them. Accept the blessing that they're wanting to give you. And, and that's just one lesson that, that Donna has taught me. But um, certainly we miss her. And uh, I, I won't do a sermon here. I'll, I'll let you go. But certainly we miss her. Um, and we, um, we're thankful that she's home. And she's, and she's happy where every day is Christmas, right? <laughs> In heaven. Um, so thank you, Pastor, for uh, the many years and uh, uh, your patience and your instruction uh, to us. Okay. Now we can go. <laughs> Out here as you go, uh, Donna's still ministering uh, on the coffee table, or uh, I should say TV trays out there. There's gifts which Donna made the church for Christmas or if she didn't make them some, I think there's some scarfs there that she wore please help yourself and uh, as a remembrance of her thank you we are dismissed um.